Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2008 film Let the Right One In. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, this was this was a movie that I wasn't sure of when you recommended it uh, or when you picked it, uh, only because the name is such a generic like horror movie name to a certain mm. degree. Like, because I know I've heard it, but I've heard the titles of a thousand horror movies, and it was like really you're picking that but i didn't know what that was upon watching it it's like oh yeah this actually fits right in line i feel like with a lot of things that we're we're talking about i mean it's it's definitely um a different genre of movie than we've spent a lot of time with but i i feel like it's not uh i feel like it it it, it fits into the conversations that we're having uh very well uh let's let's start it off what is your history with this film did you see this in 2008 2009 yeah yeah i did it was another film that i went down to i must have been lagoon to see it probably another film with my i'm pretty sure it's another film with my son i think my wife was along as well um yeah so i saw it in the theater and actually i have not seen it since so it was another one of those where oh yeah there's a scene i remembered it's a very visually striking film so there's a lot of scenes that i easily remembered but then there were elements uh, subplots that I had actually forgotten, so it was kind of fun. So was this a was this a a movie that you knew much about before you saw, or like what would have what would have led you to go see this? I think probably. Um, well, you know, I'm one of those people. I always I'm always interested in what goes comes to Lagoon, right? Because that's mm -hmm. uh, those are usually interesting films. But no, I knew that it was a different take on the vampire film, and I'm not a I'm not a huge vampire film watcher. Although when I say vampire film. You know, I should acknowledge that there is a wide range of types of vampire films, um, and this is this this was touted as a con new contribution to the to the uh, genre. So it was interesting to me. I also, you know, I, I don't watch a lot of Swedish films, but I've I've appreciated a lot of films that come from Sweden. So I was kind of primed for it in that respect. Um, what is your what is your history with horror as a genre? Um. You know, one of the most striking elements of that history for me is, as as you know from our previous conversations, I'm a Stanley Kubrick fan, um, and I remember when uh, The Shining came out in 1980, uh, and I remember oh, very expectantly uh, waiting for that film. You may recall the trailers for the film, the most striking image of the elevator opening and the tide of blood flowing out. So. But I would say I was interested not so much because it was a horror film as because it was a Stanley Kubrick film. So when I think about the horror films that I've been interested in, they often have more to do with who actually has directed them. Uh, so, for example, Werner Herzog's remake of Nosferatu, Nosferatu the Vampire. That was interesting to me because I'm a huge Werner Herzog fan, and we'll get to him at some point in the, in the, in the video store. Or Coppola's, you know, Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula. Um, I do, I do like horror films that don't rely on um, blood and gore. I like horror films that are psychological. Uh, Polanski's got a great early film called Repulsion, which is almost entirely psychological. Um, so that, to me, is, is what's interesting about horror films. And to me, that's what's interesting about Let the Right One In, is that it, it, although it has its, its share of blood, uh, obviously, it's pretty toned down. And I think most of the horror, if there is horror in the film, has to do more with human or inhuman relationships. Yeah, I will say as a as a child of the 1980s, I have a skewed view of what I think horror is because the 80s is there's a lot of sort of campy over the top horror, a lot of which I haven't seen. Although I, I will say um, 
one of the one of the things I love to do with with movies that we don't really talk about on this podcast because it doesn't really fit in with it is my wife and I, uh, as sort of late generation Xers, are big fans of watch intentionally watching really bad movies and sort of you know mm-hmm. making fun of them as we go. I mean, this is a very a very uh, my generation thing to do. So I've seen a lot of horror movies specifically because they're really low budget and bad. So, but I will say that skews my, that skews my view of them. So it ends up meaning I don't watch, I haven't ended up watching a lot of what people consider sort of great horror movies because I, because I, I have this particular view of them. So, like I said, when, when I heard you recommend this instantly, my, my biases clicked into why are we watching? Why are we watching like a horror movie? Why are we watching a vampire movie? Um, uh, but but you know as you said this is this is a different kind. But at the same time, I think there's lots of um, movies that that sort of loosely fit into the genre of horror. But at the same time, it's like, well, is that really a horror movie, or is that a thriller, or is that a psychological this or that? This one, like, I feel feel like as much as it is a psychological horror film in all these ways, it is still like a horror film. I mean, there is a vampire that's going, or there's a monster in this movie. And in fact, there's lots of monsters in this movie, but there's one, there's one that we would traditionally recognize as a monster movie monster. It is supernatural. It, I mean, it's not, it's not taking that idea, but saying, what if we strip it of those things? It's in fact, taking those ideas just completely seriously and, and practically. And I really loved that about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's a, it's a movie that I think we said one really interesting thing, Sam, which is it's a movie that is full of monsters. Uh, and one of the things the movie is asking you to think about is what is in fact more monstrous, a vampire or those predatory children. And uh, if any of us have childhood memories of being picked on or bullied, um, those to me are the scenes in the film that are the hardest to watch. The, 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 those are the ones that, because I knew they were coming, um, that I, those are the ones I cringe at. Uh, I can, uh, I'm not too bothered by Ellie uh, sucking the blood out of people, but when, uh, but when Connor shows up and bullies uh, Oscar, I mean, those, those are the moments of the film or, or the father, you know, the moment in the, when he's visiting with his dad and they're having a great evening and then the drinking buddy shows up um, and Oscar has to kind of hitchhike a ride home. Um, and, and the mother who seems concerned, but at the same time, kind of negligent. He seems to be on his own a lot. Uh, and he obviously doesn't feel he can confide anything in her about how, what he's going through, which is very true to adolescence, of course. So, yeah, I think that that to me is what's really interesting about the film, that it, that it puts you in the position of feeling more sympathetic towards a vampire than most of the human characters. Yeah, and actually, I mean, reading interviews with uh, Alfredson, the director, I mean, that's one of the things that he says drew him to it. He says he he has he had no interest in horror. He says I don't really I watch horror movies, but that's not a genre that I'm like really steeped in, really interested in. But he said when he read the book, it was the the bullying stuff was the stuff that he was really fascinated by that was that was even for the people making the movie the part that they were really interested in it's it's interesting because i think i mean this is a movie that i I took a while trying to figure out when is this set and it Mm -hmm. i mean it turns out it's set in the early 1980s and i will say it is a very very 1980s movie in lots and lots of ways and i actually think the bullying part is one of it this is this has been one of the interesting things having having kids uh you know my son was born in 2005 my daughter in 2007 
Um, and having them go through, uh, we're about six months away from clearing middle school entirely with our kids. <laughs> and um, it's interesting how different the idea of bullying is in mm. their mind. I mean, there's been uh, one of the really positive things that I feel like has happened in their generation is just this really big campaign to take that really seriously and to root that some of that stuff out, where I feel like if you look at even popular culture of the 1980s, now, if you look at a sitcom with that has kids in it, like the bully is a character you expect to be there. And it's like that was it's not it's not something that you're trying to remove. It's just a reality of life. Mm -hmm. um, so so to that degree, although this is a 2008 movie, it's set in the 1980s. And that seems like such a uh, important specific detail. Like had this been set in 2008, it would have felt a little different but it yeah. felt very believable as a 1980s piece and, and, and it may be part of why oscar uh accepts what's going on i mean it's it's partly that um he doesn't feel he can confide in his mother but it's also partly i think he just accepts it as part of the school ecology mm -hmm. um that there are there are prey uh, there's the prey and there's those who, who are preyed upon can you, uh, um, since, since I have a, a literature professor here, uh, can you talk a little bit about the meaning of vampires? I mean, obviously, you can go back to uh, Bram Stoker uh, and Dracula, but like, like, what is the significance of specifically vampires, and what's the draw to them? Well, I mean, I actually, I actually did a glance. I, I glanced at the etymology this morning, Sam, and I actually can't fully remember where it comes from. Uh, so I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to punt on that. But I can tell you when when the term begins to arise popularly i mean there were you know there, there's vampires that kind of show up off and on in the early part of the 19th century um but there's really kind of two main um streams of, of vampirism uh that feed into the films so the the obvious one of course is bram stoker's uh, dracula uh, which is an okay, an okay book. Um, and that gets, that gets, that's 1897 or so. And that gets, that gets ad adapted a lot. But the, the really interesting one is, um, a poem by Richard Kipling called The Vampire, uh, which he wrote to accompany a, um, a painting by Philip Byrne Jones, the son of Edward Byrne Jones, the great pre-Raphaelite. And in the painting, the vampire is actually a woman. Uh, and it's a woman who's preying on a sleeping man. Uh, and that's from that's the the meaning of the word. That's the use of vampire from which we get vamp. Uh, a woman is a vamp as a as a femme fatale. Um, but the word itself and the concept itself has been around since at least uh, at least the 18th century or, or, or so. So the 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 more female the female vamping part kind of um, kind of petered out a bit. But the vampire as the predatory. Uh, uh, undead. That's the one that kind of lived, has lived on, so to speak. Is there is there something about the twentieth, twenty first century that draws us to that? Because I think as I think about like um, you know traditional kind of movie monster things, I feel like I feel like vampires have is something that has had a uh, more sustained life, maybe. <laughs> um, and especially, I mean, there was obviously in the about 10 years ago when the, around when this movie comes out there's a lot of uh sort of vampire culture you have twilight and things like that but it seems like there's always been this draw to like like what is the meaning of vampires you know, I, I i heard an analysis several years ago and I, I can't remember now who, who who this was but this person associated uh the popularity of either vampires or zombies with other uh, political uh, culture 
So that zombies uh, supposedly represent fear of the mob. So if you live at a time when you feel as though populism or even some kind of nationalism is on, is ascendant, then you get you get zombie movies, and we did right. We had we had kind of a great period of zombie movies about about ten years ago, so, uh, and we got fast moving zombies, which was a, a, a step a, a change in the genre. Vampire movies, of course, are are in a political reading are intended to express fear of the elite. Um, fear because the, uh, typically, you know, the Count Dracula version of vampire is he's a he's an aristocrat with the Bela Lugosi accent and mannerisms. So vampire vampire movies are seen as expressing fear of the elite. So suppose, supposedly to be slightly political about it, when uh, when Re Republicans are in power, you get zombie movies, and when <laughs> Democrats are in power, you get vampire movies. I'm not sure that really actually plays out, but I think, but I, you know, I, I think obviously vampirism to a certain degree. One of the ways in which do uh, let the right one is is different is that vampirism traditionally has expressed two has had two kind of motifs bound up in it. One is eroticism, right? It's I mean if you think about being bitten in the neck, you know it's uh, it's a, the ultimate hickey. Uh, and so the count is uh, the traditional count Dracula is a male figure who in some way seduces uh, young women, turns them into vampires in, uh, or in his lair. The other, the other aspect of vampirism, which comes out more strongly in Stoker's original than it does in many film versions, is a kind of uh, religious iconography. Uh, because in, in the novel, uh, uh, Dracula will, will actually feed his vampire females uh, from his own veins. He will, he will use his long nail, open up a vein in his chest, and then they will feed on him. Uh, and that's actually a traditional image of feeding on on Christ uh, from the mid from middle medieval iconography. So that element of vampirism, expressing a kind of relig debased religiosity or a kind of eroticism, that that's been part of the part of the myth. Uh, especially, I think you see in recent adaptations, whether they're parodies or not. I think that erotic element gets gets played up quite quite a bit. And we have had lesbian vampire movies, for example. Well, it's interesting thinking about uh, this movie in particular, uh, just the in the same way the 1980s of it is very important for setting certain things. The fact that these characters are 12 years old seems like uh, very specific and very perfect because they're I mean, they're just on the cusp of becoming teenagers. They're, you know, uh, this is not a. a it's not a deep, deeply like sexual version of uh, of this. Although there is sort of this coming of age element to it, and I thought that was really, really brilliant as well. Right, that you have this friendship, relationship, love story kind of, but it's like, but it's still bound up in the fact that these are still people who have a foot in childhood. Uh, or, or I should say Oscar has a foot in childhood. I'm not sure Ellie has a Ellie. Is, I don't know if she's projecting a foot in childhood, or I don't know what happens if you're perennially 12 years old i don't know like do you always have a foot in childhood or is that something that she she acts but i thought that was i thought the age of the characters was really significant to that yeah well, that's one of the other ways in which the film is really interesting to me because you know innocence and and vampirism aren't things that you associate with each other um and um there there, there are there aren't there aren't a lot of happy vampires. It's, it's not. It's not that unusual that, in a sense, Ellie feels kind of uh, trapped in her role. Um, but at the same time, so so there's a sense in which she herself has been victimized, 
um, that brief shot of whatever has happened with her genitalia, for example, um, in the novel, the suggestion is, I, I, it, the suggestion is, or even the explicit uh, statement is that she's been in her earlier life. She was actually castrated. Well, so in the, fact, yeah, in fact, Alfredson, they walked right up to filming that scene, yeah, um, and and they just realized, and I think that was a good choice. They realized to pull back from that, so they they could sort of hint at it but yeah in the book it's explicit yeah so i so i you know in so in most vampire films the the vampire is um there's a significant distance between the vampire and the human um so what's important to me about this movie is especially the scene where she says to oscar um uh, you know i want you to uh to feel like to feel like me uh to be me for a little while uh, and so in that, in that sense, I'm going to make a leap and connect this a little bit with our watching the elephant man, this, this notion that that which seems to be inhuman or non-human is actually quite human. And, and we need to kind of reaffirm that element of humanity, even in the radically other, because we also need to recognize, as Ellie points out, that you, like me, would like to kill. The difference is you're not able to do it and I have to do it. Um, so I think that it, it, it's not often that vampires are used as a way to reaffirm humanity, which is one of the things the film is doing. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that one of the other things that I really loved about the movie was, um, how it, it took the practicality of sort of what Ellie's life needs to be like and the, uh, I'm not somebody who's who's steeped in vampire lore, but it took rules seriously. I mean, even the title of uh, the title um, applies to one of the rules. I don't know where that rule and how long back that rule goes that you have to invite them in. But yeah. but even the you know, there's that interesting moment which, uh, in my reading, apparently no one's had ever really explored um, yeah. of what happens if they come in if they're not invited. And it's this this really <laughs> horrific scene where Oscar is like basically testing her, and then yeah. she. Um, she starts to bl- just sort of bleed out of her eyes and ears yeah. and on her back, and and then 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 he invites her. And so like so, it takes those rules seriously without being overwrought with like let us lay out the rules for everything. Like like it's 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 sort of it's assuming you know some things, and it's subtly putting some other things in there. And then the the the, so the titular rule it says let's can, let's actually look at that um, straight on. So it takes the rules seriously. It also takes the consequences of things pretty seriously like i found the character of uh i don't know if you say hakan is that his name hakan Mm -hmm. um that you know he has to sort of clean up after her when she kills uh uh when she when uh, after her the first kill we see her do but also like just the practicality of him getting his little toolbox ready to go harvest blood and i found that really I, I like that because like that, that actually like he is a character who has to live in the practicality of what if you are a servant to a vampire, you know, what does what your life look like? He's got, he's got a great system, but he's not particularly good at actually putting it into, into action. So I was like, <laughs> it, may be, it would be wonderful. It would work. He reminded me a little bit of, um, of the, uh, the character in, uh, in no country for old men, you know, who goes around with the, uh, with, with the, uh, killing people with, uh, uh, figure what you call that device. You know, he sticks in mm-hmm. people's forehead, um, the bludgeon. And, uh, so, you know, so when you, when you see him first deploy this, uh, this gas, you think, well, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. Um, uh, but 
it doesn't actually work in uh, in in actual in actuality. Um, I, I want to get back to the to the her uh, crossing the threshold scene because to me that's really really interesting because you're right. It's it's observing one of the rules, but then we've never known whether or not a vampire could break the rule or if the vampire broke the rule, what would happen? And one of the great things about the rule is that it is a way of making sure that a vampire can't get you um, if you haven't invited him in. Although I'm, I'm a little unclear on that, uh, Sam, because you know one of the trappings of vampire films, which we don't see in this film, is garlic and crosses, uh, both of which are intended to help keep vampires out. Um, so I, so I, I love the fact that they've kind of invented their own consequences. So the vampire can break the rule, but, but here's what happens as a result. Um, and of course, you don't know if she knows this or not, mm -hmm. um, but she does it. And uh, yeah. the, other, the, other, the other element that it keeps, um, the other element of the rule that it keeps, which is that was actually an innovation uh, of the films, because it's not in the novel, is the idea that the exposure to sunlight will cause the vampire to burst into flames. Um, you know, so they eschew uh, the wooden stake uh, and they eschew um, the flying or at least turning into a bat, but they keep that element of fire, which to me is one reason for um, the subplot with Ginny turning into being vampirized by Ellie. Because I, I was watching that for a while and thinking, why, why, why is it going in this direction? Why are they adding this? And I feel like, well, I think it it heightens uh well it contributes to the vampire legend the notion the danger of what happens if you're exposed to sunlight so you know so we know that later on when yaka finds her we know that what's going to happen if he does succeed in exposing her to the, to the light but it also i think um you know reflects that terrible moment of realizing that you're turning into uh into a monster and and, and it builds additional sympathy uh for the person who's been vampirized Right, and it's preceded by the cat scene, which is yeah. terrifying. Uh, as somebody who's not a huge like, like I like animals, but I don't need them around me. Like that scene, uh, and just the sheer number of cats in that scene is uh, was was tough to watch. But kind of, you got me for the second time in this series to like both cover my face but keep watching. Like I was, I was that for some reason that was the scene that horrified me of of all the things in this movie was just like I couldn't, I couldn't take. Uh, I, I couldn't take that. Yeah, it's a um, combina combination, evidently, of I think there were uh, there were real cats, there were CGI cats, and there were stuffed cats. Right, right. Um, going going back to the the crossing the threshold scene too. The thing that I also liked about that was um, when we're thinking about this relationship between Ellie and Oscar. It's it's you would tend to think, okay, you have this twelve year old child in this. Um, uh, somewhat eternal 12 year old vampire. And you would say, okay, there's a clear power dynamic here, right? Like, like the vampire's the one in charge of that because they're the ones that are powerful. They're the ones who are, you know, but, but there's this moment as we think about that relationship where, she, where he basically confronts her and says like, well, what happens? What, what, and, and, and it's, in a weird way, I, you know, we you have to use the word friendship and love in weird ways in this movie, but like, it's this sort of act of, faith and love to be like i'm okay i'm going to take this risk and i'm going to step into this room because you know because she even though she says you know initially we can't be friends we can't do this she's like she, like there is this real love between them and she's willing to say for you i will do this thing and like i like we said i think she probably doesn't even know what happens but mm. um but you and you but you watch her and she doesn't 
leave the room, she stands there and stares at him until he acts on it. So like, I feel like that's such an interesting, it's a very strange sort of relationship moment scene, but I think it's really, it's really powerful in that way. Yeah, I, I really, I really, you know, one of the ways in which I thought about this film um, in connection with Station Agent um, is I, I really like the way the the relationship is developed. Um, you know, it's like uh, that to me is one of the really wonderful things the film does is the way it takes them through different stages and and the way that you as the audience know that they're having parallel but very different experiences because of the different perceptions of each other. So I love the way, for example, that it uses the Rubik's Cube. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and another way, of course, in which it is dating is, is an 80s film, uh, the Rubik's Cube. But I, but I also love the moment, as you said, that where he, the power dynamic shifts uh, and he, he ends up being, in a sense, horrified by the knowledge of what his power can actually do to her. Do to her. Um, and, and because they fundamentally care about each other, it, it, works, it works out. And I think he also, for a moment, is a bully. And he understands now, you know, what it feels like to be the bully. And that's not a role that he, want, that he wants to play. So that's the other thing I really love about how the film ties together um, the action, uh, the relationship with her and the relationship with, with, with the bullies. So I want to pivot to the end here because I want to know, uh, I want to know your interpretation of the, the, the end of this movie, uh, the, the scene on the train. I, I'm, I'm sort of curious your thoughts on this because I, as I as I watched it and thought about it, I, it's like I feel like I can read this in one of two ways. If I want to be, uh, if I want to be dark about the ending of this movie, or if I want to be hopeful and positive about the ending of this movie. So I'm curious your thoughts on that last scene. I I, I love I, I love I love that last scene, and that that's one of the things in the movie that kind of stuck completely in my head. Um, him him sit, sitting alongside her and her in the box and doing their doing their Morse code. Um, I, I think, you know, the positive view is it's the fulfillment of a love relationship, right? That he, um, you know, now the dark question, is he going to end up having to figure out a way to go out and kill people for her the way, the way, uh, the way Hawken did? Um, I don't, I don't read it that way. Um, I, I read it that somehow she's, he's come to terms with the fact that she has to kill. Uh, and she's come to terms with the fact that she has to kill. But if they're together with each other and she is being um, loved by him in the way that she that he loves her, even though she's a vampire, to me, that's that's oh, that's enough for her. I think she can go back to making her own kills because she has his support and love. OK, so. I, I'm, I'm glad because because I saw it and all I could think was is if we go back, uh, you know, 30 40 years is there a similar scene like this with her and hawken <laughs> like like yeah. you know, because 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 i'm thinking like okay it's 2020 that kid would be 50 years old now and she would still be 12 and it's like over time it's i, I mean it, what's great yeah. about the scene is it makes you ask this question about love because part of the thing when you think about even young love uh you know when you think about people who marry young i relative married relatively young i was 24 it's like you hope you grow with the person that you marry, right? You hope you grow with your partner in that way because you know you're going to change. You know you're not the same person at 24 that you are at 44, but you hope that like we we develop and grow in the same directions. But it, this is a relationship where one of them is going to age mm -hmm. and um, 
and 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 move towards adulthood and death and the other at least physically is not yeah and you know so so it's like is this a doomed relationship i'm glad to hear in this christmas season that you're willing to say no i think maybe it's not i have to say i read it and i, I love i love both readings I I walked out feeling very depressed about it in a, in a not in a bad way but just like a, oh this like this I I can't see how this story goes well because what's so interesting is in the first scene of the movie right it starts with um with Oscar and the knife and so so like we see that part of him right away and then he looks out the window and you see this old man and this little girl going moving into the house next door and you make all these assumptions about that relationship Mm-hmm. You know, even though I know this is going to be vampire, we're like, well, that's a father and a daughter. Like that's mm-hmm. everything reads father and daughter. And then, and, and, you know, and then you get into the house and you, or you get into the apartment and you see, and you think like, oh, is he somehow like cruel to her? Like that. I just, just because I don't know why I think that, but, mm-hmm. I, but then it's like, oh, wait a minute. He's actually, he's serving her. And this mm-hmm. so like that relationship, you keep, you, you keep bringing your, your baggage to it. And you're like, oh no, it's not that it's not that it's actually this other really strange relationship but i just so i sort of wondered like well, where did that get started and i had to when i got to the end i thought oh is he telling me this is where that relationship necessarily starts is something like that and i felt i just felt pretty awful but i loved it like like because i just thought like that was that was a big hammer at the end of this movie if you want to read it that way but the scene doesn't play out that way at all the scene is not haunting at all it's it's really beautiful but it also asks causes you to ask those questions well, and, and he's and he's he's tapping out kiss in Morse code, and she's doing little kiss back, you know. So I I you know I got I got I, I you're right. It's Christmas time, Sam. I got to read that positively. <laughs> um, another thing that I that I just thought was great was I thought the the child performances were were phenomenal. So that's one of the other big things uh, the director talked about was um, how much time he spent casting those two leads because this was. In Sweden, I was a pretty popular book, so like a lot of people had investments in it. So it was about I need to cast the right people to sort of fit these roles, but I also need to cast these people to relate to each other. Did you read about how they, um, how he directed them as ask, as actors? Yeah, yeah, that was, no, that was nothing. So they, so the the actors never read the script. They never read the lines. That he would only he would right. speak them to them so that they would sort of uh learn learn their dialogue by ear and and they didn't really know where the story was headed from what right. i could tell right so yeah the, the other thing that was fascinating is and 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 a plug for uh not watching dubbed versions is that her voice in swedish is dubbed uh because they felt as a 12 year old or she was a little older than that but they felt her natural voice was too high and so she was dubbed by evidently a pretty well-known swedish actress so that she would speak in a somewhat lower register so are there other things you want to talk about with this movie? Well, I just want to say one really kind of obvious thing about the movie, which I was happy to find um, another critic noticed as well. Um, and it's, uh, it's a critic I like quite a bit. He writes uh, for a website called Real Views, uh, James uh, Berardinelli. Um, and he's a pretty decent critic because I agree with him so often. But um, he pointed out, which is, of course, relevant to our conversations um, uh, of, about films in the last several weeks. He says that the, uh, the actual movie that you should connect this with is The Crying Game. And uh, 
that was exactly what I, that was one of the thoughts that I had that this film, and, and, and you know, we've watched several films with that theme and that was more along the gender identity. So, you know, whether it's uh, um, Some Like It Hot or Tootsie or The Crying Game, uh, uh, we, we have all these, uh, you know, films that we've watched where there's this question of what do you do when somebody reveals that he or she is not the person or even the creature that you thought um, that person was. And so that's one of the things I really like about this film is that it goes back with, it goes back to what I was saying about Oscar having to go through that moment of having power over her because I, I love the fact that when she, he finds out she's a vampire, um, which is great because he's sort of, he suddenly reached this conclusion himself. Are you a vampire? It's like he puts it, he puts it together, right? Um, so his reaction is not immediate rejection. And his reaction is not embracing it. Oh, fine, you're a vampire. I, I, his reaction is psychologically very, very realistic. Um, and then he goes through. There is a there is a kind of cold shoulder that he gives her, right? And so, I, 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 and to me, that actually parallels very much what happens in the crying game when Stephen Ray finds out Jay Davidson's a real, real identity, right? There's this there is this moment of rejection, but then there's this he kind of keeps getting pulled back because there's something about him, her that. There is, there is a genuine love that does not have anything to do necessarily with genital attraction. And that's the other way in which, in which they're similar. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that Stephen Ray character is going to change his sexual orientation. That's, that's sort of up in the air for me as I, I think about that film. And in this film, there's no possibility of, 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 of a sexual attraction. So there's a kind of, um, well, I, I, I shouldn't use the word purity because I'm not sure I think that erotic love can't be pure as well as platonic love, but there is a kind of non-sexual quality about their attraction that is, um, uh, is that's a really interesting solution, if you will, to what about the, this identity problem? Because in a sense, sex doesn't play into it because, because both of her, her nature and their age. I love that for two reasons. For one thing, I it makes me feel better about the ending of the movie. I was like, okay, I can do the positive read because like if I think about this like a crying game type story, that's great, right? Because I feel like the crying game has this uh weird kind of uplifting ending right in the in the, the little coda to that. So I can I can read this train scene that way. The other thing though that I really like is um thinking about this idea of crossing a threshold too, right? That 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 there is this this sort of um uh, if you think about even any relationship you have, any friendship you have, there's lots of people that you meet who are who are on the perimeter of your life, but there's certain people that you let into your into your more intimate life, right? There is there is this crossing the threshold, which makes me think about let the right one in. Make sure you're, you know, who are you letting into your yeah. your your life into your circle um and you know at, at at first glance you'd say well the vampire is obviously the person you don't let in but in fact that's the one person that he really has let in mm -hmm. um and uh and so and and once they once you cross that threshold whether it's um Stephen ray's character sort of crossing that threshold of we are now we now have a deeper relationship than this is this person that i talked to in this bar right like and once we cross that like We've crossed. It's it's a kind of Rubicon, right? We've crossed that, and you, it's maybe you can't really come back from that, you know, or maybe you don't need to. And I really like that. Yeah. You know, as strange as it is to say those words, when I think about what this movie is too, because she she is also a, a vampire that kills people and feeds on them. Like like it's 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 really it's actually kind of fun to think about. Like okay, I'm I'm saying these things, but if I take even half a step back, it's like. Those are strange sentences to be saying, which I guess is one of the things this movie's asking you to do. 
Well, in a, in a slightly darker take on, on, on the continuation of their relationship was we do know that he has that scrapbook full of all kinds of uh, horrible murders. And, and there could be, is to be a little darker about it, there could be a suggestion that he is actually going to take a kind of vicarious satisfaction in, in the fact that she is, in fact, a serial killer. Yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, anything else with this movie? Well, um, I, I think I think I, I I so love the title, and, and for all the reasons that you just said, Sam, um, that I've been avoiding the American remake, um, in, in part because the American remake is called "Let Me In," which which takes that whole title in a very different direction. But I've been reading enough about the um, uh, the argument that the American remake is actually a fine film in its own right, although it's just it's it's evidently a little different. But so I'm actually tempted to to check that one out in the same way that um, after I watched Christopher Nolan's version of Insomnia, I watched the um, uh, I never can remember if it's Swedish or or Norwegian original, uh, and there are two very good films that take different different angles on the same on the same story. So I, I might I might actually check out Let Me In. The other thing I just want to say is that. Um, I, I would encourage listeners who want to see kind of more intelligent, thoughtful, significant vampire films. I mean, check out, first of all, the, the grandfather of all vampire films, F.W. Marnow's um, Nosferatu from 1922. Uh, there's also the film about the filming of Nosferatu with John uh, Malkovich uh, playing, uh, the act, playing the actor who plays the vampire uh, in that film. And the title of that film keeps slipping out of my head. It's from around 2010 or so. And the um, the conceit of the film is that the actor, Max Schreck, was actually himself a, a vampire. Uh, and then, of course, there's Werner Herzog's a remake of Nosferatu uh, that I also mentioned. So what, uh, what, what movie do you have for us for next week? Well, you may have seen this coming, Sam. Um, but you know, At this last, point, I don't see anything coming. Okay. Well, last last week, you know, you and I uh, off off camera, so to speak, talked about wanting to watch Mank, uh, David Fincher's film about Herman Mankiewicz, the co-author of um, Citizen Kane. And I, and despite my uh, my better judgment instincts, as I'm a Wellsian, I did watch the film and I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, largely because Gary Oldman's performance is magnificent, and the film is so smartly written. It's it's and it's just beautifully filmed. So I feel as though for a a, uh, a palate cleanser, I think that next week we need to watch Citizen Kane. Uh, we, you know, we've watched Vertigo that famously displaced Kane in 2012, but let's go back and and watch Citizen Kane. And and I want to say one thing in kind of preparation: let's not watch it as some kind of um, monument of cinema. Like, let's just watch it as a really interesting film. Uh, it's not even my favorite Orson Welles film, um, but let's just let's just watch it and just talk about well, what was this like. So we'll watch Citizen Kane. I am so excited for this. I, I I've this is a movie I've seen many times, and I've I think I probably last saw it in the last three or four years because we watched it with our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will be heartened to know that as sort of they were both kind of preteens at the time they really liked citizen kane so when i would ask them what are your favorite movies at least for a while citizen kane was up there and among their favorite movies because they i feel like they got it they they got the idea of like oh this is yeah i can't wait this is gonna be great you're 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 raising them right sam that's That's right (laughs) all right well barrett thank you so much for recommending this movie this is a movie i would have never watched uh without this podcast and i 
I adored it. And I think there's really interesting things to think about. This is one that um, I can imagine at some point going back and watching again, um, because I, I just found it very, I found it very interesting. And I, I even found the Swedishness of it very interesting and, and, and the, yeah, how spare, it is in certain ways and and yeah we talked last week in the station agent about weather and it's like this one also takes weather seriously right, right? like it, i feel cold watching it and yeah and i didn't i didn't even mention that that opening scene of oscar at the window is uh, is an echo of bergman uh both bergman's film the silence which we didn't watch but also the boy in persona uh at the at the window and i, I just agree with i'm having lots of images of looking in through windows but that's maybe obvious <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we will be back next week to watch Citizen Kane in the video store. Bye.